All right, and I'm here with Anthony Johnson, uh, great drummer and I don't know what educator, uh, YouTube creator, uh, rigger of cameras in a drum practice room <laughs> from the West Coast. Uh, how's it going, man? We're, we're let's see. Today is the seventh of January, twenty twenty-one. So we're past twenty twenty. Twenty twenty-one. I already said, hold my beer. Let me see if I can outdo it. But how's it going, man? How are you holding up out there on the uh, on the West Coast? Good, man. I think it's um, it's been the same thing for a while. Um, you know, just like most musicians, just trying to, you know, stay creative and stay and stay safe. Most importantly, with um, you know, the good old Rona running around. Um, and LA is kind of a weird hot spot right now. So yeah, but it's been good, man. I'm just you know hanging out and. Uh, trying to make sense of everything <laughs> yeah so when did your gigs formally shut down last year if you will like your regular ones um so my last gig was on march 14th at the blue whale that was my last gig damn all right and now the blue yeah. whale's closed for anyone that's not yeah. up. uh exactly which was my gosh what a you know what a post that was logging in yeah um and seeing that but um the weirder part is i think we were the last people to play it wow which is a little weird because i know the shutdown happened that night right after right um yeah because originally the bad plus was supposed to play and then one of my homies called me up and was like yo you know do you want to play on saturday because they they can't fly in right and so yeah that was the last like you know hard shut off with all the gigs um that happened what have you been uh what have you been doing since i mean loaded question i know for sure but like what have you been doing the last <laughs> nine months how have you been doing the you know staying creative and staying productive and and everything else yeah i mean i think it's been um it's been a lot of creative like waves i think that um everyone every couple of months kind of realigns themselves with that the whole thing of we're going to be in this for longer than we thought. So, um, you know, what I tried to do mostly is really focusing on practicing and shedding and using the time wisely of like, you know, there's not a a whole lot of times where you have complete like free reign in the day of like, I could necessarily get a lot of time in on the instrument. So that's been the main focus. Um, and then other than that, it's been a lot of, uh, like remote projects or, um, like, you know, content creating myself. Um, it's been a lot of different things, um, at different times and then as well as some teaching on the side, but it's, I mean, I think it's everyone's situation of like, you know, we gotta, (laughs) we gotta figure something else to do because music get bored very easily. (laughs) I feel. Did you find the, uh, lack of structure forced upon you beneficial or uh, difficult to work through at first? Because I think sometimes when you have so much time, uh, it's really easy to not be productive with it or efficient with it, you know? Yeah, I think um, it's it's more difficult um, for me at least because I'm a very much like I'm a very scheduled type of person um and so it's easier to be like okay well i'm gonna practice for like let's say like two hours after this thing and before this thing as opposed to being like okay well 
you know, it's 10 a.m. right now and I have all day and right. I don't have anything to do. So, you know, and then it kind of like, you know, the day can get away from you. So I think uh, I go through waves of like one month, I'll be really on it. And then the next month I'll kind of be like, you know, getting all in my head about it. But yeah, I think it's been a little crazy having so much time and so little um, to work towards in terms of like gigs and stuff that it's been a little bit challenging um, with no constraints. So before all this, I know, let's see, we met, I guess, 2019 at Ravinia. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been, it's been a minute. Oh no. Uh, Okay. All right. And I know at that point, you know, you were finishing up at CalArts, I think, or had just finished. Correct. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you know, playing drums or whatnot, which certainly uh, yeah. versatile as what you're playing. But you, I know you were in like, was was the band at Disneyland that you had been doing? Was that just a band mm-hmm. that was that would play Disneyland, or was that considered part of a Disneyland musician? That was um, that was a band that would play in Disneyland. So uh, in the official Disney jargon, we're kind of a, what you call like a like a third party. Um, you know, like we're independent contractors, basically. Right. So they play wherever they want, but um, usually the like you know two month long festivals, like twice through the year, um, and some sporadic sprinkled dates. Those are um, they just the Disney contracts us. Right. So yeah, it's not official like Disney, you know, cast member operated, but um, but that makes it a little more easy to work with. Right. So what else were you? keeping up regularly if you will you know outside of like the random you know blue whale calls or mm-hmm. gigs like yeah. what else were was the, the the regular things for you sure i mean like after i got out of school there was an interesting period of where there was not a lot of constant anything it seemed um and you know there's always that dreaded couple of months after school where you're not necessarily prepared for post school life and you think it's going to be, you know, oh, you know, I'll have more time. But then you're just like, I have more time and I'm getting nowhere. Um, and so little by little, um, I joined a couple of uh, groups that maintained at least a bit of a, you know, at least once a month type of schedule. So it was a lot of um, kind of starting in projects. Um, like there's this uh, really, really awesome uh, piano player and composer in L.A., Will Kier. Um, who went to CalArts with me as well. He has a trio that I played with regularly and um, really, really good stuff. So it was, I think it was right before the pandemic hit. I was starting to get a little more, you know, regular gigs with some groups. Um, But yeah, the constant was just like the chase four gigs, I guess. Yeah. Did you, I I don't know, man, it's, it's, uh, it's tough to look at now. So, you know, after, after all that stuff, right, how many of it do you think is actually still going to be alive or around when this is done? You know, I think and any route that it goes, I think we're looking at a very different industry when we come back. Um, just like with anything, I feel like a lot of this is proving that there can be a lot more done remotely than we thought. Um, and it might affect, you know, because like, with, especially with all these live stream gigs, I mean, like there are places now that their primary, you know, operation 
is live streaming gigs and doing like virtual tickets or virtual tips for bands that have complete, you know, control over, you know, the atmosphere that they have in those places. Um, and I know, at least for me personally, there's a lot of uncertainty with the work that I had before for it being there afterward. Right. Meaning like the Disney gig that we talked about was the most, um, you know, the most frequent just because that's how kind of how that works. Um, you know, Disneyland itself is still not open. You know, it's right. been closed since March, which is kind of like a it, that has never happened before such a long hiatus. And so, you know, you look at a company like that who, you know, is kind of hemorrhaging money and like one of their biggest forms of, you know, income, you know, when things open back up, I'm not sure they're exactly going to be like, oh, hey, yeah, let's like hire, you know, this, let's hire all these bands back and pay them, you know, what they pay us well and they take care of us. So I I think it's more of a thing of like, you know, I don't think it's going to be able to go back to normal just financially. And then like we're mentioning the whale, like these places are closing down and having a hard time staying afloat. So I think it's just like, there's probably going to be like a massive hunger of musicians trying to get back at it, but I'm not sure if there are going to be as many opportunities as there were before. Um, you know, not to sound pessimistic, but just how it looks uh, currently. It's, it's, it's hard to tell, but I think it'll be very different when we get back to it. No, I mean, I agree. I think you're going to see um, even more of musicians moving out to the, or moving out away from the large metropolitan areas because those are going to be the places that are locked down the longest and are where we're yep. seeing venues getting hit first, you know, like the blue whale, um, yep. the Birdland at the possibility in New York uh, venues mm-hmm. in new Orleans and whatnot. And so you're going to see the venues, I think that are in the smaller metropolitan areas be able to survive a little bit longer because in theory, I guess, you know, lockdowns would be raised a little bit easier there. Um mm-hmm. No, it's going to be very uh, surreal. I think it's surreal now. I think this is the closest thing that our mm-hmm. generation has lived to, uh, lived through. That's one of like the big um, uh, challenges or like inspiring moments that musicians mm-hmm. in the past had lived through. You know, Absolutely, like, I, and I think to your point, you're you're correct because I know there are a lot of musicians moving back to their hometowns that are not in those major music cities anymore. Because I know a ton of people in LA had to move back to like random states where their families are because there's no work, but they're already gigging in their like local like live stream concerts or sometimes depending on the area, kind of like in person outside type things so i think like you're saying like it's kind of it really is area specific but all of the heavy music business areas are the ones that are having like really tough times with all the caseloads right right it's yeah it's going to be a very interesting thing i think you're also going to see a peak of uh or 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 revitalization i guess of interest in like jazz specific and academia Mm -hmm. uh because of job security and you know the ability to uh, label it as an art, you know, that has to be preserved, if you will, at that point. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's, uh, it'll, it'll be an interesting time to say the least. So with you, you know, how, um, you talk about doing remote projects and whatnot, how are you mm-hmm. handling LA still? It's, it's not cheap, you know, and none of these metropolitan areas are cheap, you know, how's that, how's that working out? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> 
I mean, sometimes I, I feel like yesterday I was just asking myself that question. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's difficult. I mean, like, you know, cost of living Los Angeles just alone is like just expensive normally, but without any sort of, um, you know, sort of work, it's kind of, it's really interesting to kind of think about how long we can possibly do this. Cause I mean, like, you know, like a lot of people went on the unemployment route because of the like specific assistance towards independent contractors, you know, which helped me a lot because I know I was like, yo, like I had a nine to five before the pandemic and that got hit too. Um, You know, nine to five in the, (laughs) the jazz nine to five in terms of it's non-music related. It's a real job. (laughs) I wasn't there, you know, all hours of the day, but I had, you know, like a part-time gig somewhere else just to be like, if I work this thing in the morning, then I can still play all my gigs at night. Um, And then that got hit. And I was like, man, like, this is weird. So I think, um, you know, part of it is like, you know, the government assistance, which isn't much, but it's still enough to where, you know, uh, I'm definitely able to get by right now. Um, And some of it is uh, because of, you know, my fiance as well. Um, you know, she works, uh, she's a musician as well, but her work is now turned to like remote stuff and like sound design that she can do without coming into contact with any type of people. So that also is a, you know, big thing where with some people it's working and some people, especially, I think for performers, especially it's just difficult. Um, so there've been some interesting moments for sure, in terms of looking at the numbers and saying how long. How can I do this? Right. Do you still see the um, value in Los Angeles? I mean, it's a little bit different because you kind of grew up there and went to school there, you know, but do you still see the value in a large city like that? Yes. I think that the main question is how much of those things that make this city great will be here after this is done? Because a lot of the thing about LA is, is that there are, you know, there are a lot of venues and a lot of, um, you know, industry opportunities here that are just an LA staple. Like you say LA and there are things that come along with that. But what happens when, you know, those venues, those that hold it down. So like for the Blue Whale, like that held down a lot of like LA's, you know, jazz scene because you had all the big acts coming through there like and it was very accessible in terms of um you know the jazz community like you could go there and you know be sitting three feet away from like you know your hero on your instrument and totally you know take part in the scene and I think that it's interesting because I'm like you know it's hard living in LA when you know I live I lived in California before I went to CalArts but I mean, I didn't live in Los Angeles, so it is like a different vibe for me. And so I'm like, it's hard because you have to deal with the whole like it's expensive. Everyone and their mothers here, you know, there are probably like 80 drummers on my block trying to do the same thing as me. There's a lot of competition, you know. But then what happens when you can't do anything anymore? Then it's kind of like we're just sitting here waiting for like some random opportunity to come up. So with uh, the Blue Whale closing. You know, what do you mm. think is the next um, biggest jazz uh, attraction there? Because that, you know, I know that there's other venues in L.A., but that mm-hmm. was definitely the premier one, the one that would draw yes. the biggest names, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, San Francisco is an hour and 25 minute flight. It's not exactly close. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm foreseeing SF Jazz staying around in some manner. And of course, then that will bring through names. But how do you think that that's going to impact the uh, longevity of, of that scene in LA, especially if that not necessarily being the, the popular music, I would say of the majority of musicians that are out there. Sure. There's the, 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 the jazz click or, or, or whatnot, but everyone else. Yeah. I mean, that that's a really interesting point. And I mean, like, you know, I can only also like, you know, I don't want to like speak as if like, you know, I'm like that. I really know everything in terms of LA because like, it's interesting that, you know, like everyone's LA perspective is very different. I'm very not low rung LA musician, but at the same time, like I'm not, no, I'm nowhere near where I want to be. So some of this might just be a perception thing of where, you know, I stand in terms of the scene, but I, there are some, there still are some venues that I think are really good. Like um, I really dig, um, you know, like Sam first, for example, that's a good um, venue. It's much smaller, but it's in the same route of like, some you know some cats come through there um and it's very accessible um as well as like you know you know college groups or younger musician you know that can come through there um and play um there are things like you know sam first world stage um the mint um but the question to me is like, and I feel like there must be a plan B. Like, I feel like someone's planning on, okay, it's not the whale, but it's going to be this new thing. Cause I feel like that really leaves a big gap. Um, but that could just be, you know, my experience. But I mean, like everyone loves the whale. That, that's like, that's where you go, you know, even for, you know, anybody, you know, you can see Billy Childs there. With his amazing group, you can see, uh, you know, Bad Plus, you can see Kneebody, you can see, you know, uh, local, you know, local younger cats, you know, it's just, it's really, it's kind of, I can't think of something that's the same in that way. But like you said, there are still venues, but, you know, it's kind of like when you take a hit like that, what's going to be put in its place or who's going to pick up the, you know, baton, so to speak, from right. that venue? Because I, because I, I mean, I don't you know, because there's colleges like UCLA puts on a lot of uh, concerts as well. But I mean, you know, you get into like college campus tickets and those things sometimes can go through the roof as opposed to the whale where, you know, if you have a student ID, you can see like the most killing show you've ever seen for like 15 bucks. Right. So it's like also accessible to, you know, jazz musicians and, you know, people in general who, will spend that much as opposed to being like, you know, going to this like, you know, theater and paying like upwards of 50 bucks to see, you know, an artist. It's kind of like a, you know, it's kind of like, do I want to see this person or do I want to eat this week? You know? <laughs> I mean, Hey, that's a, that's a, a very legitimate question. I mean, you start talking, um, cause it's not like musicians are getting in free to all these venues too. You know, you start mm-hmm. talking about going out to a venue and paying, 40 bucks for for a show and then $15 in drinks or bar minimum or whatever, yep. especially if you're not living mm-hmm. near it, you know, you start adding in like cost of commute and time of commute, it becomes a, a big thing, but that's kind of what you, you yep. got to do. You know, it's a business expense. You, you don't, absolutely. You don't have an option. Yeah. And I, think, I think the beautiful thing about LA is that there's always so many people, you know, wanting the same thing that you 
do. I mean, like, I think that probably right now there are a lot of people thinking about like, okay, like, well, how, you know, how do we get around this? How do we do something that's um, new? Cause like, who knows? I mean, they could be thinking about like, okay, yeah, the whale has to go, but as soon as things get good again, like they're just going to open a new venue somewhere else or the same spot. Like it's, it's interesting because I feel like there are so many creative people here that when, when they're allowed to be outwardly creative in terms of when, you know, we don't have to do all the pandemic stuff, stuff's going to come. Like it, that's just how it, how it works. It's going to be a different scene when we get back, but it's not going to be anywhere near like, you know, you know, like a musical drought or something. Cause everyone's so like ready to go that, you know, as soon as someone says, okay, you know, people are going to be, you know, playing everywhere, every hour, probably. Yeah, which is a, a good and a bad, because we don't yes. know um, musically and artistically, it's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, business-wise, though, it, it's not necessarily is, because then you run into the same issue with any musician. You know, if you start to play too much in the same area, you start to devalue yourself because of the amount of frequency and, and the offers that are coming across um, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how it hits people, uh, in general, because you're either going to see the, the big names go and take it, um, mm-hmm. for frequency because they're just as deprived as the rest of us or sure. an undervaluing of the, the system at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I guess for you, you're talking mm-hmm. about staying creative as uh, content posts and teaching where you can and remote projects. Um, yeah. But we're also looking back four years now on the last time you put out a project. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, talk a little bit about that because you're a sophomore in college, I guess, roughly at that point. Yeah. That puts you roughly 19 or 20. Um, mm. And you decided to record and put out an album. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah. Yeah. Why? So, it's, <laughs> that's a whole funny I mean, like, you know, it's looking back on that, like, the amount of, productivity I reached at that point I mean it was interesting because that whole project like from the moment that I was in the room recording with the musicians to when I had physical copies of CDs in that hand it was almost a month exactly like all that happened in a month Um, because what had happened was I was going to go to CalArts because I graduated um, you know the community college I went to and I was just in my hometown just like teaching and gigging like crazy and I was ready to go to CalArts, but I had to defer a semester because okay. I just did not have the money. That is a very expensive school. You know, that's a whole other right, conversation. Right. You know, my word, the zeros on that tuition is just unreal. Um, you know, uh, but worth it. It was nice. I don't <laughs> want the Cal- CalArts police to come after me. But, um, you know, so I was kind of very discouraged and I was like, man, like I have to wait to go to my obvious next step, you know, but I was like, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, screw it. Like, I'm, I'm just going to do it. And I'd been writing a lot of random songs. And so I picked, I think six was the number that fit together. And I finished all the charts and I talked to everybody and we went into the studio, recorded everything, did everything. And you know, it ended up happening in a very short amount of time. And now that's something that, um, you know, that I can have, you know, it's, it's something, it's a, I've noticed that having an album out or whatever you want to call it 
sends a certain um, message uh, to people in terms of uh, legitimacy. I mean, like, you know, I do like the album. It is not anywhere close to, you know, my musical self now because that was like pre-CalArt. So the first week of CalArts, I got my butt kicked so bad that I'm kind of like, you know, I was way ahead of where I was on that record. But it was one of those things of like, it. I need to do something and I'm just going to, I'm going to take the opportunity to completely do it. And I think like what you're saying right now, I would have done that already if I didn't have to get around the fact of like, we can't be in the same room. Right. Because I think, especially if it's like a jazz thing, if you take that spontaneity improvisation aspect out of it, you know, how does it affect the feeling of, the music itself, because I, the worst thing I would want to do is like put together a jazz record where no one's in the same room, unless it's a very specific style or sect of jazz music. But if, you know, if we're swinging, like I, you can't do that. Like, you know, this is, you know, you don't want to run into like the whole, like, you know, like Abersold, you know, backing track syndrome to where, you know, you just lay down swing for 32 bars and there's a, improviser giving you and feeding ideas that are never going to be fed back. Like that's just, to me, it's a little worrisome. However, um, I have been putting together uh, ideas for a new project that I applied uh, for like a grant for. And um, if that's able to go through, then I'll do my next album totally remote. Um, which I'll have to write according to the fact that we know that we're going to do it remote, but then it's cool because I can call anyone I want. That's anywhere. It's not necessarily, you know, I have to do it and get everybody in the same area. Um, but in terms of why that happened at a, such a weird time, it's kind of like now I'm just like, I'm like, it needs to happen. Like, you know, it just felt right in the moment. And so I just went for it um, with all the time that I had. Um, looking back on it um what would you have changed you know taking the perspective as i want to uh the next project Mm -hmm. upcoming because i think a a lot of times um from from my perspective working as like the musician and then also on the business side oftentimes musicians get so caught up in the the music and the excitement of releasing it and all and that's wonderful and i hope that they do but it, it um, the, 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 the necessity of, of planning and the follow through afterwards sometimes gets mm-hmm. overlooked. So yeah. is that a big concern for you? Is that something that, that you, you want to focus on moving forward? Like how does, how does one, from your perspective, how does one project turn into two or how does it have its longevity? Well, I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, I feel like the project that I did, as much as I want to come back to it, and I do want to build off of that, it's kind of like it's its own thing now. It was interesting because, you know, like I literally had an album release party like like probably a week or two before I left for school. And so obviously that became the the focus was was school and so 
And I came back, I think a year later, and I did a gig with that same band playing the same music. And it was really, really awesome. And it was really a good, good time. But it was like, man, it's almost like it didn't fit the same way that it did before. It was almost like it was such a specific snapshot of like my trajectory and growth that when I came back to it, I was like, I feel like this almost needs to be completely reworked if I'm going to play this again, because, you know, if it's like the same thing, like if you leave a, like a song or an idea sitting around, like in your computer or whatever, and you come back to it like a year later, it's like, almost like you look at it and you're like, you're either like, what was I thinking? Or this is genius. I have to use this. And I think that it's interesting because I've waited so long to do another one just because that's how it kind of just went down that if I did something, it would probably be such a departure in a good way right. from the first thing that it wouldn't be a continuation. It wouldn't be like, you know, like a part, like a part two or, you know, in the same vein, because the idea that I have right now and what I've been writing and planning to do, especially, you know, if I can get the funds together is do, you know, essentially like a protest record. Um, because again, like, there's a lot of weird things going on in the world right now, but the weirdest thing to me is like a lot of interesting, you know, racial situations and the lack of, you know, music, especially jazz, which is, you know, like an African-American art form, like really speaking about those, those issues currently right now. And again, that could be because of the pandemic, but at the same time, at least for me, I'm like, I feel like I need to, you know, to put something out where I can at least like communicate and kind of create these pieces of work where um, it can kind of, you know, really make people think in a different way about what's going on. Because um, you, know, you go through history you know, political jazz music in terms of like, you know, Max Roach and Mingus and Charlie Hayden, like, you know, there's just a rich history of that. And I feel like now's the time to kind of continue on that legacy. I, I agree. I mean, you read people's autobiographies, like you pick up Clark Terry's autobiography and he talks about having to travel through uh, states in the South that were still um, segregated while, while yep. he was doing that, you know, and having to cross, the line between segregated or, or not and the, the dynamic that that would take, especially in um, the bands and whatnot. But thinking about that, um, I, I think to an extent, it might be fair to say that when, when you do decide to go to higher academia or whatnot, and if you take it seriously and, and studying jazz, you know, whatever you want to call it, you, you do get exposed a little bit more to the, the mm. history and uh, hopefully a better understanding of what um, some of these musicians went through and what some of these people yes. went through, because it's very much parallel uh, and draws uh, moments from uh, American history and, and the music going through, you know, thinking of fables yes. of Fabus and, and, and just the, the mm -hmm. even the demographics of the bands or the types of bands that were going through, you know, why were there big bands at the time that they were, why did it move to small groups? And you can say whatever you can about the, the music and the way that it influenced it, but there were certain actions that were going on in the world that also did too. So mm -hmm. how has this now made you, uh, 
either question a were, were you informed enough on things and reinforming yourself and continuing to inform yourself on stuff versus your conversations with people that are not jazz musicians and their understanding of it you know that not yeah you know, not the the average joe on the side of the road but maybe your classmate that went through it that could have been just studying um not not jazz just because we we talk yeah. about the, the racial injustices during uh towards people of color, you know, uh, yeah. with black people being a large portion of that. And then you, like, that's something that's not necessarily new to us. You know, we, we've all known it's happened. We've known the, the, the levels that it's happened um, to an extent, mm-hmm. at least, you know, you were aware of how it occurred. Everyone had their jazz history course where you weren't getting away from that. And I'm sure everyone's talking yeah. about it at some point with every professor mm-hmm. that they've had in school. Um, For sure. But were you shocked a little bit? Because I think me talking to some of my friends that were not musicians, it just, uh, it's like they were taken aback. Like they, you know, they weren't, they're like, ah, no way, that's a thing. You know, like, no, no, it can't be yeah. us. And it's like, oh, well, you know. So what, what's your thoughts on it from from that vein? So it, that's interesting. And it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, Fables of Fathers, because, I mean, I played that chart in high school in the like jazz ensemble in high school and like looking back I was like I I had like you know and I'm like half black so like it's interesting because I've you know especially over the last year I feel like I've really gotten a better perspective on especially you know like you know you know African-American history and like where I feel myself within that and like what that means for me and I'm thinking about playing that in high school I'm like man like to have high schoolers play that without a serious discussion of like what it was actually about is like incredible to me. Cause I was probably the blackest kid in that band and I was half, you know, mm. and at that point like in high school, you know, who knows, you know, it, like, <laughs> it's just interesting. And I think that what you're saying is a really interesting point. Um, and especially going back to the whole, like, you know, academia jazz side of things is that we've kind of taken the, the jazz off of the streets in a way and put it into schools, which is good in one vein, but in another way, it kind of creates kind of this, um, this gap of education in terms of the pain in this music and the fact that all of these innovators, not all of them, but a lot of the innovators of this music are um, black creatives and what that means in terms of, um, what we should do and what sh- we should think of that. Cause I know that, you know, going to CalArts was really interesting for me because I was able to study music, um, like African music, like from Ghana, from drummers that were from like Ghanaian people. Like I was able to learn it from the source. And, um, that's a requirement as a jazz major, you have to take African, you know, drumming and music courses, which I think is a good, you know, outlook to that and like you're saying you know you have jazz history and everything but I think it's interesting because CalArts is not a place in which you'll find a lot of number one black students and the number two black faculty and I think that for me going through this process and especially of like the kind of tumultuous year that we've had especially with um you know you know social justice and racial um you know conversations I think for a long time, it's just been one of those things where we've kind of forgotten 
a lot of the reason as to why this music was played and how important the music is and black contribution to American culture. Um, and how that leads into how we should treat, um, number one, how we should revere and study these black giants in our history, American history, but also um, in person. And I feel like a lot of times you get a lot of um, people just like, you know, in a room playing a lead sheet. And it's kind of like, what are we doing? You know, like, you know, if you read like the Miles Davis autobiography, he was over his own music by the time that he was out of that second great quintet. Like he was already moving on to something new. And in his book, several times, he's like, yo, like I like that was done. Like it's new. And then he gets on people from, you know, keeping his music in this nice, like, you know, museum perspective of like, you know, we got to play it like that. And we got to play it, you know, you know, let's, let's play, you know, freaking, you know, like, you know, four or something and let's play it just like the quintet played it. And I think that's a good thing to be able to do, especially from a historical perspective and being able to play different feels and styles. But I feel like it's an interesting point that we're at because I think that as much as we're talking about, you know, African-Americans in this country, I feel like that we should put that into our music as well, considering the music that we're playing. Um, and there should be a lot of new projects and just creativity because like, this is the time where artists are needed the most is when there's a lot of confusion and a lot of, um, you know, just, there's just a lot of interesting things that have happened this year. And then I think that um, at least I've been thinking about a lot this year. And I think I've kind of found a new point in which where I lie in that. And I feel like it's more of a responsibility in terms of my next project to be like, okay, so we're going to talk about what's going on through this instrument and through this music that has a root in all of the things that are going on right now. Cause a lot of the stuff we're dealing with is not new. It's often cyclical, you know, like, if you listen to racial debates in the sixties with James Baldwin and a, you know, Georgia governor, it's going to sound very similar to what people are arguing about today. So it's more of kind of like, you know, reaching into the music and, you know, making that connection with what's going on, at least for me, because it's more of a, like you said, like a, a historical thing of like, you know, these people fought to play this music. And this was serious for them. This was not just like, oh yeah, like let's, haha, let's just go, let's play a tune. Like to them, like like this was life, you know. And so, I think that it's just an interesting point because I'm just I've been thinking about it a lot more recently. Um, and you know, I'm not sure if my, you know, if I'm answering your question per se, but I think. It, we're just in an interesting point, and I think it's an interesting discussion as to where where this music lies with all these conversations we're having. Right. I mean, it's it's tough because I think you get a lot of people today that claim through a, a lack of a, a direct association with anything in the past. You know, like no one is claiming that a person today owned slaves. It's it's literally impossible. You know, um, obviously none of us. Uh, born in 1995 mm -hmm. was involved in segregation, you know, Absolutely. but 
it's um, while in trying to to escape it through the logic of disassociation, which albeit technically correct, it leaves the uh, a lot more space open for a revisiting of the, of the topic, you know, and and yeah. stuff happening. And I think that um, you see that a lot in in music. You know, people get caught up in all the wonderful things at the face value that music is um, mm-hmm. and the short-term gratification of it. But it's definitely a little bit different if you start like reading the autobiographies and hearing these people um, talk about it and everything and the significance that came behind it. Um, and I think that that, I, I don't know about you. I think when we all think about uh, these great musicians, you know, obviously they have like technical facility and they are good. <laughs> Spend all this time doing it and everything. But yeah, then yeah. Um, there's always like that little extra something that you can't necessarily put your finger on. And I think um, thinking about it more and more, it, it might come down to simply like emotional maturity um, mm-hmm. where someone For is sure is capable to process their own feelings and um, sharing them with others, but also be able to understand enough um, what else is going on. And and that's where um, you see all those moments coming. I mean, I think of someone like a Kenny Garrett and the type of influences that go into his music rhythmically and, what he's just doing himself, you know, and how is that any different than Ellington writing a sacred concert suite and the stuff that was going into his music there? Um, you know, it, it's just, and it, it might also come back to like just the age that we're in with social media and everything. You start looking at things with yeah. short-term gratification and um, just putting stuff out there to, to, encourage that short-term gratification or even the fact that now you look at uh you know dating apps there's no need for to people to learn to understand the feeling of rejection uh who's gonna yeah. know if someone's swiped oh, left on you know whoa, 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 whoa. so say it say it but you get that in it in it it um eliminates some things that i think are very uh pivotal to where we're going because you know if you start talking about people wanting to go to social media with short-term gratification and and the levels of that can respond to you know uh people going famous on tiktok for something that they would have never imagined that they did but then they do and they're getting hundreds of thousands of people interacting with it who's to say that after getting that enough times they're not going to want to see that replicated elsewhere you know and, yeah, and for sure. i don't know i mean there, there's also this book um i'm curious to hear your thoughts on that someone uh friend sent me and told me to start reading uh the four hour work week or whatever by timothy uh ferris oh yeah, yeah. which uh first off have you read it i've read the first bit of it okay okay and so uh you know it basically backstory is the book is all about trying to help people uh organize their life in a way where they can spend more time doing what they want to rather than their their day job, their nine to five. Um, and I was reading it the other night and I was like, man, that's, that's a great thing to, to think about, but it's also really depressing to think about that <laughs> someone is spending time figuring out how they can do less 
or spend less time on their job to be able to do more time of what they want to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I don't know. I don't know how I got here from where we're just talking about, but it is, it is something I think that's also uh, as much as our, our lives might suck right now with being musicians. It's a very fortunate thing to be able to try and figure out to do a living with this. Yeah. And I think that's, it's interesting that you bring that up because like I've been reading almost nonstop this pandemic. Like I have been, and I feel like that's a little bit of an untapped area, especially for musicians. Like, you know, there are the obvious books, uh, you know, there are things like, you know, the like effortless mastery that, you know, that's Kenny Werner. Like he, like that goes around a lot of musician circles um, and like, you know, like the miles autobiography. And, but I feel like there's a lot of nice information in some of those books that helps you have a bigger understanding. Um, like you were saying, like, you know, kind of having a historical perspective, you know, like I read the book, um, like as serious as your life. And that's about like, you know, like the, the free jazz revolution or whatever, like new black music. And to read about like these people that like, it was so interesting to me because there's a whole era of music after, you know, like the, like post bop, all that stuff, like after that and like Coltrane, like post love Supreme, he started to, you know, really inch in that direction. And by the end of his life, he was playing like completely different stuff. You know, it's like, there's a bit of, there's gaps in those, in some musicians, you know, understanding of some stuff, just because I think some of it is just so historical in the way of like, you just gotta like study up on some stuff Um, because there is, there's so much information that makes sense. What, once you read it to go and and put it into the music, um, you know, and be like, that makes sense. Why, this album came out or why things started to sound like this or like really interesting things like um, Coltrane before he died, he wanted to kind of create this, um, this like loft space where, you know, musicians could rehearse and people could come in and just like buy a soda and watch people rehearse and like have writing sessions, which is interesting because that seems like such a modern idea of like you know like master classes but like completely you know just like casual you know it's just like interesting ideas and you you say it's kind of depressing about that book and I do in some way very much agree with that because I think especially as you know musicians we're trying to like maximize and streamline our efficiency in terms of what we want to do because you can't necessarily just be like, okay, well, I want to live in Los Angeles, but I really just want to practice all day. Right. That's not really how that goes. Right, right. You know, because you got to make money. Be- <laughs> you have to make money to pay rent. <laughs>